Welcome, everyone, to the Change Starts Here podcast. I'm your host, Dustin Odom. And on this week's episode, we welcome Dr. Madeline Levine to the show. Dr. Levine has over 35 years of experience as a cl clinician, consultant, educator, and author. She is someone who's got two, soon to be three, New York Times bestselling books. She's someone who co-founded the Challenge Success Project at the Stanford Graduate School of Education, which is focused on providing families and schools with practical research-based tools they need to read, raise healthy, motivated kids capable of reaching, uh, reaching their full potential. Uh, Dr. Levine has dedicated her life to figuring out ways to tap into kids to help them reach their full potential. If that's a passion you have, this is a person you need to get to know. Uh, she's incredibly down to earth. We talk to her. We talk about her time as a teacher, uh, both the the things that she did well and the challenges that she faced, uh, and starting her career in the Bronx all the way up to now, where she's a clinician, consultant, and a psychologist for many uh, of the most influential people in the world. So, with that, uh, I'm going to leave it there. Please stay tuned for this episode. There's so much wisdom. Uh, and again, Madeline and Dr. Levine is incredibly down to earth and fun to talk to. So enjoy this episode. Today, we have an incredibly accomplished person with us who is going to do a lot for changing our paradigm. So I'm not going to I'm not going to go any deeper than that uh, right now. I just want our, our guest to introduce herself. So Madeline, our first question is for everybody is, who are you and why do you love what you do? <laughs> Who am I? Um, so, you know, I've got a long list of I'm a psychologist and a consultant and a writer and a speaker. And, uh, um, my heart, I'm a mom. Um, my kids are probably close in age to you. Uh, they're all grown up. They're married. Um, I have one granddaughter and I'm a family person. I'm just big family person. And um, the importance of that was really brought home to me by um, my youngest son. So he's sitting in the kitchen with me, this is maybe a year or two ago, and I was a little nostalgic about my kids are all grown. And I said, um, Jeremy, I, I, I don't have kids anymore and it makes me sad. And he said, Mom, you don't have children anymore. You will always have kids. <laughs> That's on my mirror. Um, it's sort of evidence of a job well done and it makes me feel good. So it, all the work I do, incredibly important to me. You asked me why I love what I do. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you in a minute, but um, I was just incredibly fortunate. So much of what happened in my life was a squiggly line, which I write about a lot. You know, I didn't go from, I went from, um, being on food stamps to being, you know, known in my little sphere, as, as my husband calls me, a minor celebrity. Mm. Um, and, you know, that really happened because um, I lost my dad when I was young, I was a teenager. And that threw suddenly, and that threw my family into a kind of chaos. I mean, my mom was 40 at the time and my dad was a little bit older. And I, I think my work really comes out of life is tough. I get it. Life is tough. It was really tough back then. Um, and I, I think what I feel in my heart is like 
we shouldn't make it any harder than it is just by being life and unpredictable and difficult. And so I have a very unusual, I think, trajectory, which I'm happy to tell you about, but I love what I do because it gives me a purpose and I feel like I'm being helpful. Um, and I, I'm a big believer in purpose. Uh, you've got to have a why for why you, you do what you do. Uh, and without it, I think people are lost. So my why is I have a skill and, and I'm pretty good at it and I want to use it to make other people's lives better. Well, I, I love asking this question because, um, you know, if anybody, <laughs> there's gonna be a lot of people that are going to Google your site and figure out uh, who you are and why we're talking to you. And you didn't mention any of that, which is awesome, right? I mean, you are, <laughs> you are a world-renowned psychologist, ch children's psychologist, but also uh, uh, you're, a, I think, a multiple New York Times bestselling author. And you started talking about your kids first, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you started talking about your pain second, and then your your why third. I just think that's it's it's remarkable. And so, uh, just so our audience could know you a little bit more. I find it fascinating. My wife, we just put that together uh, before we got on this this call. Is um, my wife started her career teaching in the Bronx, and you? It's, I think that's where you started your career. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you started there and ended up now a you know a world renowned psychologist and New York Times bestselling author? Sure. Did she teach in the South Bronx, Dustin, or the Bronx? Uh, that's a great question. Taught at Garrett Elementary. I want to say it's the South Bronx. Her school was, uh, uh, I think, 100% free and reduced lunch. Um, uh -huh. I got to figure that out. I'll, I will figure that out and get back to you. Let me know. I, I taught in the South Bronx, which was, you know, Fort Apache, the Bronx, was made about the South Bronx a million years ago. So how did that happen? Um, let's see. So, you know, I, I talked about... Uh, um, some good fortune and that squiggly line. So I went to the State University of New York at Buffalo. Um, I applied to one school. It was back in the day when that's what you did when you had limited resources. And it just so happened that, um, long story short, it just so happened that a whole group of people who ultimately became incredibly well known were taking a year at the University of Buffalo. So my first English teacher was a guy named Robert Haas, who has been the poet laureate of the United States twice. There was a school called um, uh, Mountain. It'll come to me in a minute. Um, and they disbanded and Rauschenberg and um, Leonard Cohn. I used to sit on the uh, steps with Leonard Cohn, Allen Ginsberg. Um, and they opened me to the world of literature and writing and all of that stuff. So when I talk with Denise Pope, who's my co-founder down at Stanford about challenge success, she went to Harvard and Stanford. And I always make a point of saying, hey, I went to the, here I am right next to you to the state school. And it was a great experience. So that, that was like my first experience in, you never know, take advantage of what is presented to you. Right. When, when I graduated, um, I got a social work. Well, I didn't finish my social work degree. I went to Columbia and social work and then switched to education and taught in the South Bronx. And the South Bronx, well, I was a terrible teacher, a terrible teacher. <laughs> and and that, that's not false humility 
at all. I really was a terrible teacher. Um, it was a very tough classroom. We had an ambulance that the city of New York gave us stationed outside every day um, because somebody was hurt badly enough every day to warrant an ambulance. So it was easier to give it to us. So it was a rough school and, um, and I'm not great at discipline anyway. It's not my strong suit. Um, and, but what I was good at was going home with the kids and sitting with the kid and the mom around the kitchen table. It was always the mom and trying to figure out an escape route for those kids. Because if you went to school with your books, you would get beat up. Mm. Um, it wasn't cool to be smart. And so I was good at that. I was good at figuring out a solution to a problem. And um, I did that for three years. You know, didn't it was it was a fail. And and for whoever's listening, don't underestimate the value of your fails. Um, you know, if you did a line, I'm I'm down here then. And uh, what did I learn from it? That I wasn't a good teacher, but I was really good at problem solving with teenagers. Hmm. So I went to work at Mount Sinai Hospital as a recreational therapist. I I don't know. I was putting macaroni on plasterboard or something like that. it's hard to know what I was doing and but I liked it I really liked talking these were really disturbed kids and I was totally at ease with them and after three years my supervisor called me in and said you're fired and I was again a fail right I was beside myself and you know I had an apartment in New York City and it's like why am I fired and she said because you need to go back to school and get a PhD mm -hmm. so fine um, important in my life in many ways and I come from a very I said I come from a working class background we didn't have money nobody in my family knew anything about people who had PhDs so it was and that's why mentoring is important to me if that woman had not crossed my path, then um, I'm, I don't know that I would have ended up doing what I'm doing. So anyway, so I worked at Mount Sinai and um, then my husband, who's a, a doctor, did a residency out here in San Francisco. So we came out to San Francisco. We lived in Marin County, an affluent county. And I, and I was just seeing things that didn't make sense to me. Um, and I, I think one of the things I've struggled with in my own life, actually, I was thinking about this before our interview, was I tend to see things like a little bit differently. And I can't, I can't quite explain it, but I always felt a little bit like an outsider because I, I think things are complex. And I think my greatest skill is translating complex issues into things that that are easy to read. And I think, frankly, that's my father was a cop. Um, my mom didn't work. I think that's, I got my practice in that around the dinner table when I would learn something at school and try and communicate it to them. So yeah, my books are popular, but partly they're popular because they take things that are challenging and they're e not easy to read, but um, academic writing can be just awful. And I was seeing all these kids working in Marin County who should have looked great, right? Marin County is money and the parents are educated and they weren't, and they were doing really poorly. And I got so interested in that, started communicating with people around the country. And that was, 
The Price of Privilege. That was my first book, which had a tiny run because HarperCollins figured that was just going to go to a few rich people. And it went to many, many parents. So that was my oh, first. But why, but why is that? We don't need to spend too much time on that because I really want to talk about your latest project. But mm -hmm. your point, if anyone goes and, and Googles it and sees the price of privilege and the description, you know, a lot of folks, just like your your own a publisher, was thinking, oh, this is a small market. Not many people are interested. What do you think, what was so profoundly interesting for it to become so popular? So I, th I think that was the beginning of the concept that um, over-parenting or helicopter parenting or snow, whatever, yep. had, had a downside to right. it. And, um, and, and that was, you didn't have to be rich to see that in your own house. You could be just working class, middle class, upper middle class and see it. So at the time it was an, a very, an unusual concept to say, hey, you know what, all that stepping in you're doing trying to protect your kid is actually impairing them. So, I mean, again, I, I would say uh, uh, that's a fascinating topic that obviously is probably pressing for the time, but then you moved on to teaching your children well, ch teach your children well, right? right. And, and kind of defining, I think you called it authentic success, which I find interest, like incredibly interesting on its own. Tell me what kind of led to that project for you. So that that was really about everybody, everybody. Many people saying to me, okay, that was a really good idea. Now, what do I do? I mean, that book, the first book was identifying the problem. Yep. Um, the second book was how deep I felt the problem was and, and what parents could do about it. It was much more prescriptive than the first book. Um, and yeah, that really came out of people saying, okay, great, now what do I do? That's what it came out of. And I have very particular notions about what makes a successful life. And it is not aligned with what a lot of people think makes a successful life. And now, you know, I've got 40 years of talking to people under my belt, and I'm even more certain about what does and doesn't make a successful life. And it's different for everybody. You know, there's not one size fits all. But the zeitgeist of great grades and great college and work for Goldman Sachs, um, man, Goldman Sachs just issued a report on how the people who work there are doing, and it's horrifying. Hmm. So the, this, this, you know, and there are some kids who thrive there, but this issue of what it takes to be successful, which is really bound up with materialism and wealth, um, I don't think it's a good prescription. So let's let's just pause there for a brief moment. I mean, the the many of the folks who listen are uh, district leaders. This podcast are district leaders, school leaders, mm -hmm. aspiring leaders in education. And so, uh, if we're to redefine what success looks like in a school system, what are just a couple of the key points that you encourage people to really? rethink or take another look at so great so challenge success uses the word space and these are the things that we're not in in the country now across the country space is scheduling uh, p is project-based assessment um, project-based learning a is alternate assessment c is climate of care and e is education parent education those are the issues I think we need to look at. So many of our schools now start later. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, it, it was, it's an interesting finding. You start school 20 minutes later, how much longer do kids sleep? You would think the answer is 20 minutes, but it's actually 35 because they feel so much better. So we do a lot with scheduling. We like project-based learning. Um, I think climate of care is the most important um, attribute in there because we know the best predictor of academic success is engagement and engagement rests on like Sue Fine was to me, somebody seeing you, knowing you and encouraging you. Yeah, I think when I, again, I we, we talked earlier about you're a proud parent of uh, three adult kids uh though you always have kids not children right um uh all boys and so i've got i've been blessed to have three boys myself but the oldest is seven and i think all of us as parents are trying to improve upon what we learned right or teach new lessons and have our kids not have the same failures we had and i think about my time even in college like there's definitely some classes that i dove into that i never thought about grades because i was just so excited about the content but for the most part as a competitive person from high school through college, I was always just trying to get the grade. So I tried to figure out what's the trick to not work any less because I enjoyed the hard work, but just to get the grade. Mm -hmm. And when I think about, I robbed myself because of that mentality of a really rich, robust education that my professors were trying to give me. How do we, how do we fix that? Or what's encouragement that, we, that you have or learnings that you have to help fix that? So, so I think that's interesting because um, we call them robo students at challenge success. You know, the kids who are just, that's all they're doing. I had a, I had a patient with just a quick story and she was uh, pre-med and she would come in every week and she'd ace chemistry, she'd ace whatever it was because she was taking Adderall at night and she would memorize, stay up all night, memorize everything, take Benadryl or a, a, um, Xanax in the, in the late morning to go to sleep. I don't want her to be my doctor, not ever, right? Mm. So there is a, a cost to those kids who feel that any sacrifice is worth getting the good grades. And, and here's the thing that I don't understand, and actually don't understand. In real life, like you didn't become a neurosurgeon, right? right. <laughs> neuro Nor did I, because my <laughs> spatial relations are awful. In real life, we do you play basketball? I went to college to play basketball, but uh, was a water boy. So, <laughs> oh, then, but you know the phrase "go to your right." You know, in basketball, they're always saying "go to your right," which is go to your strong side. And so, nobody is perfect in everything. Nobody is great in everything. And I often think, I was an okay math student. I was a very good English student. And if my parents, like so many of the parents I talked to, the call is, hey, Dr. Levine, I heard you talk. And can I talk about my kid's grades? And I, I know what it is already. You know, it, the kid has four A's and a C, and they want to know how to bring the C up. <laughs> well, and it makes no sense to me, because if my parents had been concerned about my math grade, that would have been less time that I was writing and reading and learning about the things that I would ultimately excel in. So I don't care if your kid has a C. And if you think that getting that C up is worth sacrificing um, real skill in the area that your kid's good in, I think that's a mistake. And my one of my favorite stories in the book is um, 
we did a thing it's challenge success about a kid whose math grade was failing because he was playing the guitar too much and so we we have a big audience and we give these possibilities on a screen one was you take away the guitar one was um the grades are if he wants the guitar back he has to get better grades and the third one was um get him a tutor I happened to be uh, friends with James Hetfield from uh, Metallica. And I said, what do you think of these three options for a guitar playing kid? And he just said, why isn't one of them make a band? And, you know, it's a good story. It's funny, but but it's also right because you can learn you can learn entrepreneurship you can learn music you can learn collaboration there's so much to be learned in a real focus on on anything and that I, and i don't want to be heard as saying your kid doesn't need to learn math or anything that's a given that there are basic things that need to be learned but go with the kid's passion and yeah. as long as long as that's you know not selling heroin i'm good with it you know yeah yeah i know we're not here to talk about that particular project of yours but i i find it incredibly fascinating and i think as a, a, a young parent i definitely am fascinated by it but i think anybody working with kids needs to really take a look at what authentic success looks like right. and so from there, it leads you to uh, your latest book. And so can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of that and um, what had you so excited about sharing your thoughts with the world? So the genesis of that was partly disappointment. Um, so I'd written two books and they were very popular. And I spent 12 years traveling the country and sometimes the world talking about, you know, let kids fail and let them fall down and um, don't over parent and grades are important, but not the only thing that's important. And did I impact and not, I'm not the only one. There's a there's an army of us out there with that message. Uh, Wendy Mogul and Ken Gitzberg and Jessica Leahy. There's just an army of us with the same message. And did it move individual needles? Yeah. Did it move your listeners? Um, structural needles? No, it didn't. And it was like, feel that I had spent, you know, a decade on the road to not much avail or to talk about that in a different way, what I was interested in. And so ready or not, I don't talk to many psychologists or educators. I wanted to go where people were successful in the midst of change. And, and so I, when I said, I think a little bit differently, like press of privilege was, there's a problem here before it was really recognized, I would say. And, and then now it's, you know, many people are aware of it. Right. And this book about uncertainty and change uh, it came out two weeks, three weeks before COVID lockdown. So when it gets re-released this summer, it'll have a chapter on what we've just been through. But it was clear to me that um, there was a lot of change in the offing and we were really poorly prepared. And, and frankly, that kind of came just from talking to people in all walks of life who had a very different skill set that, you know, they didn't necessarily come from the best schools, quote, the best schools, best for who, you know, is the real question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they didn't, but they were profoundly successful, both 
financially, but more importantly, in terms of feeling they had valuable lives. And they just came from the, you know, they came, they were boat people. I mean, the stories I have in the book are somebody's a boat person and somebody else is drunk at a party and meets Zuckerberg. And like, it's just not that straight line. And I, and I wanted to get out the idea that if you look, I've been talking about this 15 years and you've sort of listened, but not well enough. And here's additional research from heads of hiring. You know, I talk to people like heads of hiring at LinkedIn or the CEO of Morgan Stanley or the head of AI at Facebook. Yep. And they all said the same thing. It's not like some of them said, no, we're still looking for great. They all said the same thing. We're looking for collaboration. We're looking for creativity. We're looking for a fast, get up from falling down do i have time to give you one more story i have a good story yeah of course you, yeah, you okay. have time are you kidding yeah <laughs> time. i'm actually thinking through i'm like uh, you know I, anybody listening is thinking oh i would love to have my kids or my students be able to work at those places so tell us what we need and tell me any stories you want right so um i, I this is three years ago uh i take that same son jeremy my youngest son um, because I'm going to get a mortgage. Uh, I moved from Marin to San Francisco and I'm going to get a mortgage and he's interested. He says, can he, can he come? And I say, sure. So I'm sitting with the head of the mortgage department who it's her own business at First Republic Bank. And we're talking about mortgages and my son is just being who he is. You know, my kids aren't listening. Each kid is a little bit different. They hate it when I say the creative one or the nice one. They hate that and they're right because nobody is just one thing. But my youngest son's very empathic. So he's just sitting and listening. And over the course of maybe an hour and a half, three times he says once to me, mom, you know, I'm looking at my watch, the meter might run out, let me put in a quarter for you. And I give him a quarter. And then he did that twice. And one time, because my voice is scratchy all the time, he said, Ma, I saw some tea out there. Your voice is great. Would you like me to get you some tea? And as he walks out, he turns to Carmen, the woman I'm talking to, and says, would you like me to get you some tea? Don't think anything of it. That's Jeremy doing Jeremy. Yep. And at the end, I get the mortgage, but she turns to my son and says, I want to offer you a job. <laughs> she knew nothing. And this was the beginning. This is like three years ago when I started writing this book. She knew nothing about him, nothing at all. She didn't know if he went to college. She, so I'm like, whoa, wait, what? I said, well, tell me, why are you offering him a job? And she said, I can train kids to do the work, um, but I can't train kids to be kind. And this is the kind of person I want sitting next to me at the bank. And um, the, the upshot, <laughs> just because it's funny, of the story is so he worked in banking for two years, hated it, and uh, went to law school. So you never, you know, you never know how these, but that really jump started my interest in what are people looking for? So. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, given where we're at today, still within the pandemic, it feels like we're coming out, but I don't know. I think you had a, a really interesting phrase when it comes to change. I think you borrowed part of this maybe from Dr. Fauci, which was, uh, mental health being the second pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then also you're talking about people are overwhelmed by looking for an answer. So mm -hmm. change is everywhere. What, 
what kind of advice do you have for folks right now as we're going, we're in the midst of this, is it over? Do we have light in the tunnel? Are we restarting? Is there a second pandemic, which is mental health? I mean, what kind of advice do you have to kind of manage that change? So um, it's a very uncertain time, uh, which it will continue to be. And, and, you know, just a point, your brain doesn't like uncertainty. Like for everybody who's feeling that, what's the matter with me? Or I got on online with you at one o'clock thinking it was a one o'clock appointment. I'm screwing up appointments and days <laughs> and, you know, like what's going on? And um, the job of your brain, it has many jobs, but one of the major jobs is prediction, right? So I know you have three kids. I bet you know where they go to school before this and what time they go to school and what time they get out and where to pick them up. That's your brain in the background doing its prediction work. And now we we can't predict, you know, it's like, will it open? Oh, it opened and then it closed again. Like it's incredibly hard right now. And your brain is really unhappy. So when you're confused, uh, it's, it's not you. It's your brain sort of sending up flares. Um, I think, I don't know exactly where we are in this trajectory. It feels to me like we're getting some daylight Fauci says there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm fully vaccinated. My husband's fully vaccinated, which means I can hug my granddaughter now. Um, I'm not on a plane now. I mean, you get to see people having very different risk tolerance now, I think. Um, this is not over. You know, the, the idea that I'm vaccinated and the, the day that I got vaccinated, I'm looking for my mask. I'm still wearing a mask. Life is not all that different. I'm staying at a distance from people and I, I don't know when that'll change. So how do we handle all this uncertainty and what are parents worried about? So I think they're worried about um, kids are going back to school. This has been the last month of phone calls. My kids going back to school and either they are so excited or they hate it. So this idea that going back to school is gonna be a piece of cake, it is not going to be a piece of cake. There were kids who were bullied. There were kids who were socially phobic. There are young kids, you have young kids who are who have just spent a year, year and a half being told, don't touch that, don't do that. You don't want to kill your grandmother, you know, and now we're saying go out into, into the world. So anxiety is going to shoot up. Um, but I do, there's one thing I want to say about that, that um, kids are resilient. Um, the research on uh, bombing in London during World War II was that the kids who were allowed to stay with their parents during the bombing did much better than the kids who were taken out to the countryside, right? So be, having the parent be um, in good shape is probably the most important thing you can do for your kid. Everybody calls like, what do I do for my kid? What do I do for my kid? Take care of yourself first, and and I, and I mean that so sincerely, because what you get is I'm trying to work and I'm taking. I can't take care of myself. You have to take care of yourself. If you don't, it doesn't matter what you're doing for your kid, because we know the connection between maternal depression and kid depression and maternal anxiety and kid anxiety. So. I mean, I think that's one of the really big issues. I think being um, overwhelmed is a big issue. We know that um, probably the most effective um, thing to do to become resilient is to have a good social support. Mm -hmm. 
So when the pandemic first started and I was asked questions and, you know, we are all um, flying the plane as we build it. All of us, whether you're an expert or you're not an expert, we've never been here. The political unrest, the vaccine, the politics. So it's, I just want to be clear to your audience that I certainly have ideas about some of this, but I'm putting a caveat in there that uh, this is what I think, but it's a work in progress. And so um, in the beginning, I talked to people a lot about, look, you're a grown up, you're a grown man, right? You're 42, something like that. <laughs> Around there, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you've been through enough of life. Was I high or low? I, I can't tell from your response. A little high, but that's okay. I'll a take little it. high. So you're <laughs> younger. Sorry. I'll um, take it. <laughs> it's a little bit of gray in the beard, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, right? So so you've, been, you've had enough life to have had some difficulties along the way. Everybody does by the time they have children, whether it's a failure in some area, whether it's death or a divorce or a lost friendship or whatever. And out of that, you've learned how to cope, hopefully. <laughs> um, and, and we all have. So my go-to coping skill is writing. My dad died, I started writing. And whenever I'm in trouble emotionally, I go to writing. Mm -hmm. um, you can't write 18 hours a day for a year. I found that out pretty quickly and it made me realize, and this is my advice, I guess, made me realize whatever your coping skill is, that's terrific. Now add one more because you're not going to get, um, what was yours? I'm just curious. What would you say? For your, me? Yeah. It, it's working out, but it's also, uh, part of like long walks with, uh, you know, certain, uh, podcast or certain type of music to let me just kind of zone out and to, uh, thinking about like what I'm concerned with and just really process it. Okay. So you've got two there. That's good. Um, you know, a lot of people it's working out. You can't work out 18 hours a day either. So it's, it's kind of like you got to add something. What I added on a personal note was, look, I raised three boys. Um, I had a career, my husband's a surgeon. What was cut out of my life were really friendships. And so I used this time to work really hard on making four friends uh, that I talk to every week um, and will continue to be good friends with. And two here in San Francisco that I can meet with now and, and two on the East Coast. The point is you got to come up with one other thing that makes you a little bit more robust in the face of all this challenge. And you got to help your kid with the same thing because they don't, their toolbox isn't built yet. Yep. And, and one of the things that I get questioned a lot about is my daughter's in her room, you know, all the time, or my son is whatever. Well, that's part of your job. I mean, your kid, your kid can be in their room and be socializing and learning, and that's fine. Your kid can be in their room and thinking about killing themselves. That's not fine. Right. So you do, you do have to really know your kid, spend this time to get to really know your kid and help them develop something. One of my families, the whole family meditates um, before they go to bed, and they like that.
So, you know, there's the standard things to say about what helps, right? Eat well, sleep well, um, uh, exercise, um, meditate. And I always say meditate every talk I give and I have never meditated, but it's a good, <laughs> but it's a good thing. You know, we have good data on it. Um, so those things need to be done, but you also have to figure out how you're going to manage through this period of time. And that means building up your resources a little bit and okay, go ahead, you go. I'm talking. No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm fascinated. So to that point, uh, so last, I think Thursday, I got an opportunity to host a webinar with about four high school students, right? Just mm -hmm. to talk about what's life in the pandemic been like for you. And what I found fascinating, but I'm sure you would not find, I mean, you find fascinating, but maybe not as surprising as I found it, is we had one student who had been at home the entire time. And so mm -hmm. my thought was he'll miss high school, be so excited. He's like, nope. No way. <laughs> I don't have to deal with the drama. I get to work as fast as I want. And so to your point, he has a ton of anxiety about coming back into a normal high school setting or traditional high school setting. Mm -hmm. So for us as educators, what, as we think about learning recovery, because I don't think he's, he's far behind, but there's a lot of folks that are coming back and we're trying to figure out how do I academically make sure that my kids didn't lose any steps while we had this hybrid approach or mm -hmm. approach or whatever. What, what is the most important thing that we do or what's one of the most important things we can do when we get them back in schools, when we get students back in schools? And I just want to say, if you had um, talked to junior high school kids, you would have had more than one kid saying that because junior high school is the world's worst idea of what to do with a 12 year old, right? You know, you have men, boys that are tall as men and <laughs> midget little kids down who aren't and you make them undress in front. Of, it's just awful. Yep. Um, so I, I think I'm, you did not use the phrase uh, learning loss, which I really liked. What did you call it? Learning recovery. I mean, learning, learning recovery, loss. much, much better than learning loss because you can't lose something that you didn't have. Right. right. Exactly. And so everybody's saying that, oh, my kids have all this learning loss. And it's like, no, they don't because they didn't learn it in the first place. Right. I want to answer two parts of that. I think I think we will probably end up with some hybrid kind of education. Um, I think for a lot of kids, this worked for them. You know, the kid who went in every day and got bullied and called a fag and fat and all those kids are then not coming back or not without some major changes and things. So I actually think, um, and I think it's a huge burden on the teachers, by the way, I, I think what teachers are doing in this period of time to me is mind boggling. It really is because they've had to learn without years behind them of uh, working online, sometimes online and part of whatever. I have great respect for what teachers are trying to do. Yep. I, th I think you need a lot of empathy with kids now. Um, I actually don't think it's the end of the world for them. You know, there's all these articles about uh, the trauma of having been through this. For some kids, and we haven't talked at all about the differentiation between living in a upper middle class family with resources and living inner city with no resources. And so in a way, I'm not 
particularly worried about the kids who have had a parent at home, who have had help with their online learning. Um, I think there's catching up to do. I think they're missing, especially young kids, missing some early socialization. But the real worry is inner city kids who have truly lost a year and um, have to work. Uh, one of the kids I talked to today was talking about he doesn't want to give up his job, which now puts food reliably on the table yep. uh, in order to go back to school. So, you know, help me figure, help him figure out a way to go to school and maintain this part of his life. So I think for most parents, um, listen to your kid, please listen. Um, 40 years in psychology, uh, treating teenagers, and I have never once had a kid in my office who said, um, you know, my parents, they just listen too much, right? It's always my parents talk too much. And I think listening is um, a very underrated skill that we would do well to, to develop. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. When we talk, or I was talking to you about, we both agreed that yes, there's, there's pockets of places where students are going to need to catch up per se right but you said something pretty profound for me was you know we need our kids our kids need to be um, stabilized I think before we worry about catching them up and so I'm curious about unpacking that so what did that what does that mean for you so using a little bit of my teaching experience which as you can tell was not tremendous but you know you when when a kid walks in the classroom you've got kind of a choice of what you're going to tend to with that child and my thinking really is that the most important thing teachers can do now is be in relationship to the children coming into their room and take the time and i think this is so important take the time to understand what this year has been like for this kid without making assumptions because I've talked to kids whose parents live in, you know, mansions where dad's drunk and mom's, you know, doing coke. And I've spoke to kids where I would expect problems and like this young man who's got a job and is really helping out. So I think you cannot anticipate exactly what you're going to find out when you talk to kids. But I mean, any parent knows this until your kid is okay. Um, they, they're not going to learn, or they're not going to learn well, or they're not going to learn deeply because they're preoccupied. And so I think what I would encourage teachers to do is take the time, and then parents are pounding on the door, my kid's behind and they won't get into Harvard, and you know, come on, let's get going with uh, SAT prep. But I think that what they really need to do is take the time to have a circle and take the time to have kids write about their experience and take the time to talk to them individually. I think that's critical. That's great. Well, <laughs> I think, you know, one of the things uh, this podcast is about is leadership is about failure. It's a messy, it's ups and downs, uh, it's resilience. And you've been incredibly forthright about things that you did well and things that you struggled with. And that's really appreciative. So uh, one thing we ask every guest before they leave is to share a piece of advice that is on your heart right now or something that you've been thinking about a lot lately of what's one step from your perspective of how I can improve as a leader? What's the change I need to make? 
That, that's a hard question because I don't know you well enough to know your strengths and weaknesses. And, I, and it's reminding me, before I talked to you, I was on a board meeting and somebody said, you know, we have to take kids and turn their weaknesses into strengths. And I said, no, we don't. We have to work on their strengths and not be so preoccupied with weaknesses. So given that I don't know your strengths and weaknesses, it's a general comment about being, going to your strengths, going to your right, but also being gentle. And I don't mean this in like a woo-woo kind of way. It, it's, um, when, when I started talking during the pandemic and people asked me what their goals should be, I said for months and months, your goal is to get through this period. And as the pandemic went along, people would say, that's such a low bar that, you know, really, is that the best you can do? And I didn't think it was a low bar at all. I thought it was an incredibly high bar to get through this pandemic with your family reasonably intact that's your goal. Um, that's everybody's goal out here. And that is not an incidental accomplishment. And that, I think that's what I mean by being generous with yourself if you've made it through in reasonably good shape. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, your first first part of that is you don't know me. And so you don't know what strengths are, but figuring out I know me, right? And I can have people who do know me help me figure out those strengths. Right. And the second part sounds a little bit like grace, right? Giving yourself grace for uh, really you're, you're through or you're getting through it um, and continue right. to fight, right? And can, can I, I have one more thing I'd like to say since you have educators as listeners and we talked about this a little bit. I, th I do think we're in for a world of hurt around mental health issues. And I think that par part of that's just to be expected. It is what happens. Resilience is also what happens, but the early numbers look like we're going to have difficulties. And, and, I, and I wanna put a caveat on that. So a challenge success, we just looked at the numbers of anxiety, depression, stress, that kind of stuff. And surprisingly, they didn't look all that different than before the pandemic and so we're all sitting around going how could that be everybody's saying kids are going to go nuts but those numbers were really high before the pandemic so our system was broken even back then and will it get worse i think it actually will be worse and i think that it's critical that we um start preparing some kind of mental health triage whether it's teaching teachers or bringing in mental health people. I would love to see a core of um, retired teachers or education master, whatever, get paid and learn to do assessment, interview and, and uh, basic, basic referral and triage. Mm. Um, and I think we're gonna be stuck, not with the fact that we don't have those resources right now. Right. In California, we have one counselor for 600 children. So that, I just want to put that out there. That concerns me. Well, I think, I mean, I appreciate that. I think what what we can do is first have awareness, right? That this is coming. Two, maybe we're already seeing it and we can name it. Mm -hmm. And then three, we have to start looking for pushing policies or systems within our own district or communities or even state or federal communities Absolutely. to 
try to get the support that we think our, our staff first and foremost, and then students need. Mm -hmm. I think so. And I'm, I'm trying to work on that. I'm trying to work on policy a little bit. And if you have district heads out there, you know, support their bunch of uh, bills right now in the state legislature that address this issue. So a phone call is worth a lot um, in terms of uh, politicians understanding that there's awareness around this. But that if, if one thing concerns me, that's probably it. Well, uh, I have to say, you know, I've interviewed a number of guests here and I, I, your humility is incredibly refreshing. So you're someone that's incredibly accomplished, you know, have your own project at Stanford, again, best-selling author, and you, you've cited a few times the people who helped you get to where you are, and you've cited other thought leaders who are in the similar fight with you. And so the humility is something that actually, in your honesty of saying, you know, I don't have all the answers, that makes me want to listen to you even more. And so I just encourage anybody who's getting introduced to you right now to dive into who you are, but also what you're trying to accomplish in this world and your why. So thank you for spending time with us. I really appreciate it. I'm sorry I didn't make the one o'clock time you had. I made the two o'clock <laughs> I had. I would have loved to talk to you for two hours, but I'm glad we figured it out. And uh, thank you so much. I hope to talk again soon. Please support us by subscribing to our YouTube channel, uh, podcasts on Apple or Spotify, and help us celebrate the beautiful, messy work of shaping human potential.